Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Okay, so it is going to be my job during this interview to bring or to match the energy of the conversation uh, pre-interview. Uh, he's become a dear friend and someone that I look up to as a leader in, in education, and I would venture to say that if he wasn't in education, he'd be a leader in whatever he would go after uh, and pursue. But we're going to be speaking with Dr. Quentin Shepard. He is the superintendent of Victoria Independent School District in Texas. Uh, he is the author of The Secret to Transformational Leadership. Uh, Quentin, look, we... Whenever we have a conversation, uh, we definitely need to have more time allotted because you are, uh, from my vantage point, one of the the more one of the most open superintendents from a you know what if we need to talk about it we need to talk about it um, that I've engaged with over the last decade and that spans hundreds of superintendents so that is a fantastic playground to uh, sort of be a part of because you are willing to have conversations that I think are incredibly important and they're on the you know, sort of on, on the tips of, of the tongues of, of community members across the United States. But let's start with this. Let's get some of the business out of the way in this regard. Why, I always like to ask authors, sort of why now? Why a book in this regard, right? So why not five years ago for you? What was it? I feel like, you know, some of these things have to align. The stars have to align where you kind of say, you know what? It's time to put pen to paper uh, and you sit down and you start to hammer out a book. So why this book for you right now, Quinn? Uh, you, you know, it, it did start probably five or more years ago, really, maybe a decade ago. And, and through my leadership journey, just seeing these these growing um, frustrations from leaders in the public sphere, because this is not just written for school leaders. This is written for anyone who leads in the public space at all. And frustration with the leaders at not being able to do the things that they're wanting to do, but then compounded with the frustration that the community however you define community, is feeling about that leadership. And that was just a point of angst for me. And, and I just studied people and studied processes and studied events and tried to figure out like what seems to be working when it's working and what's not working when it's not working. And the thing that I landed on more than anything else was the literally the language that people were using. And then I think with the COVID you know, pandemic and, and what happened, it just created this massive polarity in our country and um, the conversations that need to be happening are not happening in appropriate ways. And, um, you know, there's there's the way that I talk about it a, a lot and I haven't, I haven't put this in an article anywhere yet, but it's talking about the difference between heat and light, right? And you see events in school districts where there's a tremendous amount of heat but nobody's standing up to put some light on this and say, like, this is why this actually matters. This is why this conversation is important. And can we take a step back from it and frame it in such a way that we can understand it? Heat is not a bad thing, but heat by itself doesn't doesn't do what we need it to do. We need to have a combination of heat and light. And I thought this book comes at a time where maybe I can shine just a little bit of light on specific this one thing, the language that we use to do leadership in the hopes that it spurs the conversation and, and people you know are willing to take a step in that direction. Let's talk about the role of the superintendent. Um, I would contend, Quentin, that it has never been more, we've never been in need of a complex set of skills from an individual as we are now when it comes to being able to manage, to be quite frank, really the community or the ecosystem at large. I mean, this is not just 
you know, sort of managing from a, you know, managing an operation, or if we want to sort of slap on corporate terms and language and vernacular, this is a really comprehensive position that requires a set of skills. Uh, sounds like I'm invoking uh, Liam Neeson there from Taken or something, you know, a particular set of skills, but that it does it does require so much more than what it did back when you and I were, let's say, high school students, where it's not about sort of city management in that regard. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that. It's just that, my goodness, the relationships, the the complexities of the needs at the teacher level, the building leader level, the, the diverse communities and the rapid growth that some are seeing in that manner and the complex budget issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like a conversation that's not happening is... One, are we preparing superintendent, the next generation, the way we should? Two, are we providing supports for those currently in the superintendency? And three, if not, are we asking questions of our school boards, of our communities, our elections reflective of that? Um, Kind of speak to the role of the superintendent now and where we are, State of the Union. Wow. I'm going to need an hour and a half to answer that question. (laughs) We will carve out time for you, Quinn. (laughs) You you nailed it. And you used a really important word. You used the word complexity several times, and that's key to this whole understanding. Uh, So so the short answer is um, it's not great right now. And yes, the skill sets have, have more than doubled in order to do this job effectively. When I started as a superintendent 18 years ago, a lot of my job was complicated. There was one way to do it. It's all in the textbooks. You're taught by you know, former superintendents who've done the job. They teach you how to do it. You go after it. There's it, and, the, and the deal with complicated is that there's just kind of like one right way to do it, right? It's just, this is how you do it. And generally people in communities were willing to accept that 20 years ago because the internet wasn't as prolific. Twitter hadn't been invented yet. Facebook didn't exist. And so folks would say, oh, he's the expert. He's got a doctorate. He studied this. He studied from other superintendents. He's our local expert. We're going to trust his judgment or her judgment on this. Unfortunately, it was mostly men at that point. Thankfully, we've made some progress in that regard. But um, but it was seen as complicated. And I would say that the biggest shift that I've experienced in the last 18 years is that now a majority of my work is complex. Complex is inherently unknowable. And the, what makes it unknowable isn't the actual problem at hand. It's the fact that everybody has access to the same information I do. So as a leader, it requires me to step back from myself and say, listen, Q, you don't have some privileged knowledge of reality because if you approach a situation that way, what I'm really saying to everyone who's listening to me is I need for you to subordinate your will to what I believe to be true. And right there from from the outset, the community says, no, I've got Google in my pocket and here's 10 school districts that are doing it differently than you. And frankly, they've got better results. And isn't that antithetical to the the role of critical thinking that we're hoping we are instilling in young people that if we strip the public of that, what are we actually teaching? <laughs> right. Absolutely. And so now it like it, this gets really deep in a hurry, right? It kind of harkens down to like, what is democracy becoming in the way that we do public leadership? And that's, and that's where I say that line of differentiation between complicated and complex. So the skill, to back to your original question, those skill sets have, have more than doubled because you still have to do the complicated work in the district. You still have to do budgets and audits and um, bond defeasement schedules and you know, it, on and on and on and on. A lot of work that we do does require certain expertise, but then you have to learn this whole other skill set about how do you work in the complex. And as a very concrete example, the biggest the biggest um, trigger point for a lot of people is in your conceptualization of power. 
right? Power in the complicated is all about hierarchies. Like if, if Q says he needs to get something done and it's a complicated task, then I know who to tell and you know what degree and I put guardrails in and you know this is the expectation and outcomes and so on and so forth. But power in the complex still exists, but the minute you think hierarchy, you're doomed because it's all about networks. And see, then, then it's like thinking differently about how power manifests amongst the network. And you, you still are part of that conversation, but you, you participate in that conversation differently because the first question that you, it, you have to ask yourself is who has access to what information, right? And if you try to be exclusionary in the public sphere, you're, you're, you're toast. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it's a huge deal to the public who's being impacted by those decisions. So you have to adhere to this philosophy that the people who are closest to the decision who will be impacted the most should have the greatest voice in that decision. Now, is leadership teaching this? No, no, they're not. Leadership schools around the country are, are teaching this in different ways, but as a consolidated like theory of how we do this, and not just from a not just from a theory standpoint, but also from a practical application point, it's not really happening. You can read about the difference between transactional versus transformational leadership, for instance, or you can read about, you know, Clayton Christensen was one of the first who was writing about complicated versus complex, but nobody's come along and, and like tied all this up in a nice bow and put a string on it and said, this is how we're going to do it. And I think the best place to start is with the language itself. Like, let's just, let's just treat this as a totally different way of doing leadership. Let's create some language around that. And then we can fill it out and, um, and talk to people in a very practical way. Like, here's an example of when we did it this way. And this is what happened as a result of that. It feels like we are still, we remain reactive as opposed to proactive in the superintendency. Um, it's just sort of writ large, right? It doesn't mean that there aren't people doing work, doing amazing work. It's just that this is a living, breathing ecosystem. It's incredibly fluid. We're dealing with issues that we never thought we would have to, I think, deal with present day, every day now about censorship and curriculum. And, you know, just the list goes on and on and on. And it says to me that we can't think about the superintendency like we used to think about just education in general, that it was reading, writing, and arithmetic. And whatever I taught last year, I'm going to teach this year. And we could, there was some confidence in knowing that we could rely on that kind of a model. And yet, like our communities are changing every day now. I mean, the way in which people are, the mobility of families is like we've never seen it before. And so that changes the makeup of communities. And it means what we did yesterday may not work for our current community members today. And it feels like that should be sort of plugged into the curriculum of this next generation of leader and hopefully supported from a professional development standpoint for the current leaders. I, I agree 100% with that. Um, I think yes for aspiring leaders and those who are coming into it. They see it now. It's, you know, we could, you talk about like digital natives, they've, they've lived it their whole lives. So it's just part, I think leaders who are coming into it now absolutely see it that way. And they're, they're clamoring for it. They, they get it. It, it intuitively. When I talk about these concepts with leaders who are just aspiring, it instantly connects and it's motivating and inspiring and so on and so forth. I think for leaders who are established though, it's very different. Like for me, I can distinctly remember about five or six years ago when I realized that exactly what you're saying, when I was reacting to what was happening around me, um, here's, I'm gonna be very, I'm gonna be very uh, transparent with you about how I framed it for myself. It's the ultimate act of self-deception. 
It's the ultimate act of self-deception as a leader. Because what I'm doing when I, I react to a situation is I'm putting myself in a box. And the reason I'm putting myself in a box is because I've put somebody else in a box. I put a community in a box. I said, they think this way because. The students think this way because. The teachers think this way because. And then as a leader, when I do that, I've actually put myself in a box too. And to talk about the ultimate act of self-deception for what I set out to do when I first started in education. I wanted to make a, a difference in the lives of kids, teachers, and communities. And so for me, it was that very deep, personal, I am going to do this differently. I, I, regardless of the outcome, like if this, this, this whole experiment falls apart, this type of leadership falls apart, I'll know that I've done my very best work in trying to move leadership along where I think it needs to be going. And so I just made the commitment, I'm gonna lead differently, I'm gonna do it differently. I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to the community first when there's something complex and I'm gonna expose all of the suffering connected to it. Let's just put it all on the table. Who's suffering, where are you suffering, why are you suffering and how are you suffering? And then let's try to connect around suffering and see if we can actually make real change happen in our communities. And turns out people wanna talk about that. They actually they care. They do. Yeah. Let's extend the conversation around leadership to school boards. So we were talking offline. There's been a lot in my local uh, public school system here. And I was asked to meet with a uh, school board member last week. And I walked away, one, enjoying the conversation. I, I encourage, I think, you know, community members should engage more in that regard, not to take away from the work that needs to be done, but to, I think, show that we are a supportive community, uh, community member, and that that's important for a thriving school district. Um, but I also walked away thinking to myself, wow, I, you know, is it as political as I had thought or more? Uh, and or what did I really think about that? You know, the, the role that politics play uh, in education at the local level, right? This is not, we're not talking federal <laughs> department of education and that it does impact the way in which we, I think, vote at the ballot box for our school board, our county commissioners and and, and it, to me, it, it links to, because I do want to focus on the school board and sort of your perspective on how we should be thinking about and maybe a, an updated version of leadership in understanding how to align culture, climate, policy. Um, but it speaks to, I think it's a little bit of an indictment on the education system in general, because we don't teach civics like we would purport to do uh, globally. And so yeah, I think well-intentioned, incredibly educated people really have no clue how the school board interacts with the superintendent and how that then sort of trickles down to the building level and how county commissioners and the sort of the taxes that are then contribute. I mean, we just don't know the mechanics. And so I think it sort of mucks up the system. It's like we're throwing a wrench in the system. And the school board feels incredibly important in the relationship to move a school district forward. Can you talk a little bit about school boards in the alignment of this culture, climate, and policy. Yeah, so here's the thing about school boards. You talk to almost any school board member at any state around the country, and one of the greatest sources of frustration is they either feel completely dealt out of the work, like what am I supposed to be doing, or not knowing what they're supposed to be doing, or feeling like they're having a marginal impact on either the school or the community or the kids, and so, yes, you're seeing this sort of like fishing around in the dark. What should we be doing and how should we be challenging in these, you know, these conversations and what's our role in the conversations? And so I'll get like hyper granular for a minute to, to like we all experience this. It, 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 it shook out in every school district across the country. Masks and, and the need to put on masks or mask mandates and mask policies. Now, the board member, and I'm going to keep it specific to board members because superintendents and boards, different roles, different responsibilities, 
board members have a governance responsibility. Governance is uh, up on the balcony, right? The leadership responsibility is on the dance floor, right? And so leadership and governance are two different things. And governance, the way you do governance is you look. You look from the balcony, you listen from the dance floor. So if you're listening to constituents all the time, if that's all you ever do, you're not actually doing governance. It, it feels good because you're really super busy, but you're not actually doing governance. A, a different way of saying it is, it's the difference between customer complaints versus owner concerns. Like lots of customers have lots of complaints, but if those complaints continue to manifest around one area in particular, you might have an owner concern. So back to the masks thing, is the question is, is it a tactical decision? We need to put masks on for this period of time to specifically lower the transmission that's happening? Or is it a governance thing, a strategic thing, in which case you would have adopted policy, since you brought up the keyword policy, that said any time our attendance rate drops below 94% as a school district, we will mask up. And then forget about the pandemic for a minute. That happens if it's a really bad flu season or future pandemic, but that's strategically thinking, not tactically thinking. And so many school boards were, because we haven't talked about governance and leadership in this way, they delved into the tactical role of running a school district, operating a school district, and then it gets, to use your words, mucked up. It gets all mucked up, the, the wrench in the monkey works type of thing. So if, if that conceptualization of how to do school board, you know, if that doesn't work, if it breaks down, what should the school board be doing? Well, in my world, the school board should be doing, doing everything they can within the world of complex. And I have like this series of if-then statements as it relates to the school board and the work of the complex, because it's really all, of, it's all about transforming the supportive systemic structures that make public education great. And I'm going to say that again because this one's really important to me. I'm going to, I'm going to go to town on you now, Rod, because like you, you got me fired up. Like it's transforming the supportive systemic structures that make public schools great. And it's a series of like five if-then propositions. Number one, if we can establish equitable funding structures around student learning, equitable funding structures around student learning, then we can have a conversation, a real conversation, around quality assurance, right? So if you can, then the next one, if you can establish like quality assurance frameworks with the community, then you can create a, a sense of community ownership around ideas. Ownership is big for me, especially in the community. If you can do this community ownership work and the community feels like they're having an impact on quality assurance and the equitable funding structures, then, if then you foster courageous leadership and policymaking, the community takes that and they say, yeah, well, we actually need to do things differently as it relates to accountability. We need to do things differently as it comes to recruiting teachers. We need to do things differently as it comes to the education that we're providing our kids. And then finally, the last if then, if you get to that courageous leadership and policymaking, then you cultivate public will for the understanding and need for transformation. That's the work of school boards. That's it. Those five things. If then, if then, if then, if then, if then. Not working in isolation. So speaking of school boards, help, help the audience understand 
what should what is a realistic expectation from a community member when it comes to a knowledge base that we think a school board member and collectively that they should have as a governing body and with the backdrop of this so i have read transcripts and and listened to meeting working sessions that school boards will have prior to a vote and these sorts of things and there are times, Quentin, when I am just beside myself at the lack of understanding as to how teaching and learning works from the very people that will be governing <laughs> what is going to be instilled in classrooms come sort of next school year or that type of thing. Is that is it unrealistic for me to think that we should be electing school board officials that have some background in education? It just feels like if we take education out and we just say we're going to have a governing body for this sector that it feels like malpractice to have a governing body that has no background. Because when you see some of these questions as a community member, you say, well, this doesn't instill a lot of confidence in my public school system. Especially if that same board is, is actually driving the work that's happening inside the school district. I don't think it's true everywhere, but I think it's absolutely true that if the board is doing the complicated work and they're involved in the complicated work and directing some of the complicated work, then you're probably right. If they don't have, if they don't have some serious content knowledge to do that work, it's, it could be a recipe for disaster. However, if a board truly embraces this notion of governance and governing culture and building a community culture around ownership, quality assurance, public will for transformation, that doesn't require a special expertise. That's talking to people. That's presenting people with problems and helping people come together. That's bringing people together so that they can, you know, my story, your story, our story type thing. But they have to trust then that the leadership is doing the complicated work. They have to allow the leadership to do that complicated work. And so we, we've completely restructured how we do board meetings specifically so that the board gets the information that they need from the administration, that we're doing the work inside the district. But we try to structure a majority of our board meeting time around complex community ownership, unknowable. And it, it allows for the board members to have a, like a real work to do in the district every day and come to the meetings knowing that they're making real change. Quentin, let's, let's close on this. Let's talk about parents. And of course, I'm giving you sort of a, a, a very large canvas and, and broad strokes, hopefully, that you will take with this canvas. But I think we also have a responsibility as parents to participate in meaningful ways that we, we should not be afraid of asking the question why, if it's meant to come, if it's coming from a good place. Um, because we should be participating. This is not dropping our kids off and just, you know, going about our lives so that, in essence, you, the Dr. Shepherds of the world, can take care of our kids. Um, we should be more active. I think we have a responsibility. But I think in that, I think it, a fair question would be, how can parents increase the value of their participation in the, the mechanics or the mechanisms that, that actually drive a school district? I mean, if you could put a request out there, what, what is it that is beneficial? Every single child has a unique genius, right? My, my kid, my kids, my, my personal kids, and all 14,000 of the, the rest of the kids in my district, they all have a unique genius. The, the, the frustration sometimes is when parents don't share their suffering with the teacher or with the principal and then have that same conversation back like specifically around kids, because I think if we could, if we could, you know, if we could, if we could holster our sidearms, you know, put the cell phone away for a minute, 
stay off Twitter for a second and have like a serious conversation, heart to heart conversation about kids and what kids need, then we can actually make real change happen. And I'm not, I'm not so much um, focused on the academic piece because, because part of this, it opens the door to a conversation about a student's uh, emotional well-being. And some kids need that. Like when you immediately ask the question, I'm like, I thought of a hundred different parents and a hundred different kids in my mind. And I'm like, oh man, actively engaging for some parents with their child's education means that we need to have a conversation about how this particular student's feelings are hijacking their emotions and they can no longer access their education. And I'm thinking for other kids, oh, they're not being challenged appropriately because they're, they're bored and gifted, <laughs> right? And so like every Every child needs that unique and individual experience and in school systems need to be able to deliver that. Like I firmly believe that education is in a third generation state, right? And so the real quick of it is first generation is like the up and coming, it's the founders, you know, mentality, all ideas are good ideas and we're gonna make this thing work. Second generation is typically um, maintenance of those, those power structures, like try to keep everything in place and we wanna keep what we have sort of thinking. And then third generation is we're going to keep doing everything and you iterate in the second generation too. So that's the same thing. You just keep iterating and iterating and iterating. And we've been doing that in education to the point where we've iterated ourselves into a, into a, an, a, a mess, frankly. And then third generation is I'm going to keep onto those structures with everything I've got, because I believe that this is, but it's ultimately leads to tremendous decay. And I say that so that I can answer your question that I think a lot of school systems and school districts find themselves in decay because they're holding on to these antiquated structures about how we should interface with parents, how we should interface with kids and how we should approach the education. What we need in this third generation right now is we need some founders thinking who, who are willing to say, we're gonna do things totally differently in some of our schools because, because frankly, it's being demanded of us. As an example, one of the things that we're talking about here in Victoria is some of the ESSER funding and, and the ways that we can improve overall student, you know, learning and, and well-being. We're talking about why would you not expand that conversation to include families and potentially family support counseling for families specifically that have had a disproportionate impact because of either income level or job or what have you. And, and that then is to address your question, how does a family get involved in a child's education? Well, it's different. It should be different. Not everybody fits into a category or a box in that regard, to your point. Well, like always, I, I wish we had more time than we, we've got. I want to recommend uh, Quentin's book, The Secret to Transformational Leadership. Uh, it's I'm glad you mentioned it's not just for school leadership in that regard. I think it's a, an, an incredible lesson for us to think about the ways in which we participate in leadership, either actively and passively in the way in which we challenge ourselves in, in that role uh, that we, we share with others. I think that's very key. You are, you are, you are very, uh, I think, prolific in your ability to communicate about shared experience uh, and your own in a very uh, transparent way. And I think we're all the better for it. So I encourage you to check out The Secret to Transformational Leadership um, and also check out Victoria Independent School District. They're doing some great things down there. We want to thank Dr. Quentin Shepard. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.